This is the podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times where we analyze the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I'm your host Audrey Tan and I cover science and environment for The Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David and I'm the climate change editor at The Straits Times. It is the 8th of June. Today, we are going to dissect one of the terms that has been banded around a lot lately in the climate change discourse, net zero. This is in reference to the climate pledges made by a number of countries to have their emissions reach net zero, some by 2050 and others later. But what exactly does net zero mean? Why is it important? And how are we going to get there? Today, we discuss this with an energy expert from the US, Dr. Jeffrey Logan from the Renewable and Sustainable Energy Institute at the University of Colorado Boulder. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Audrey. So now I guess before we start, context is really important. We have had many governments and businesses say they want to go net zero. Could you explain to us what this means exactly and why is it important? Yes, that's a good question. And we often forget that we use the word net zero just because it's now become such a common practice. Really, what it means is that we acknowledge that we're not going to be able to fully decarbonize every single activity in the global economy, and that we'll have some emissions continuing, whether it's from the combustion of fossil fuels or it's from some agricultural process, but that we will also figure out some ways to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere or other greenhouse gases. We'll find a way to pull some of those greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere, and that in the end, there will be a little bit of emissions happening but there'll also be a little bit of negative emissions happening. So in the end, they cancel each other out when you get to a net zero energy system. That's the origin of that term. So we'll come back to how governments and businesses plan on meeting these targets. But first, I'd also like to discuss the timing of these pledges. So the Paris Climate Agreement was inked in 2015, but it is only until recently that we've been seeing many more of these net zero pledges being made with a lot more countries, including China, setting such targets for themselves. So why the rush now? And don't we need a bit more detail on many of these net zero plans? Another good question. I think that the apparent flurry of activity is a direct result of the Paris Accord. And the treaty envisioned countries beginning to make stronger and stronger pledges for climate mitigation and adaptation over a five-year period. So when Paris was agreed on in 2015, five or six years have lapsed since then. So it's really working the way that it's supposed to work to the extent that countries are stepping up with pledges for net zero energy systems by the year 2050 or 2060. But we also have to acknowledge that not all countries have been raising their ambition in the way that the Paris Accord hoped to achieve. And do you think the pandemic had something to do with this, you know, the rush to sort of net zero? Has it sort of woken up people to the, you know, we've seen one peril and we've seen what's going to come down the line after it. So you think that's sort of woken people up and along with, I guess, examples of extreme weather-linked episodes from fires in California or Australia or even, you know, the Amazon? Yes, I think there's a really interesting parallel between COVID and, you know, us being caught off guard by that and the fear that we're going to wake up one day soon and we're going to see the dramatic impacts of climate change staring us directly in the face. And it's one thing to get through a pandemic without fearing that the entire world is going to die. 
But it's another thing to see the ice sheets in Antarctica or the Arctic to melt because they will not come back in our, our lifetime. Unlike a pandemic, which we can survive, you know, until the next vaccine is needed, for example. So I think, yeah, there's a really interesting analogy there. There was a lot of attention paid to how the world cut its emissions of greenhouse gases in 2020 due to the pandemic. Certainly, they didn't do it voluntarily. It was just because economic activity was so constrained. We have quite a challenge ahead of us. We have to cut emissions far more than what occurred during the pandemic every single year going forward. I guess the only vaccine for climate change is for us to slash emissions right now. So, I mean, on that note, you know, big oil is a key player in helping the world reach net zero. And the pressure has been growing on them as well. Uh, we saw the Paris Climate Agreement exerting quite a lot of pressure on these groups. And last month, we saw them also being dealt a pretty heavy blow by courtrooms and boardrooms all around the world, and forcing Shell, ExxonMobil and Chevron to set more ambitious targets and curb their emissions further. So how do you think growing climate regulation and expectations of shareholders and consumers factor into companies, governments setting these emissions reduction targets? Yeah, I think as we've already talked about, the public is exerting greater and greater pressure on not just oil companies, but all companies to finally get serious about climate change. And oil companies, I think, have long been the poster child for inaction on climate change. Although, especially the European major oil companies have taken this fairly seriously, at least compared to the big American oil companies and some of the other oil giants around the world. Oil companies are serious about lowering their what's called scope one and scope two emissions. And that means the emissions that occur when they are producing oil out in the field. For example, they have to run diesel generators in order to drill deep down into the earth and then extract oil from the ground. They can replace those diesel generators with renewables or with grid electricity. But when they produce the oil and sell it, these are the emissions that are very difficult to get rid of. Those are called scope three emissions. And I think the oil companies are getting serious about scope one and scope two, but what's going to happen with scope three emissions? In other words, after they sell all of their oil petroleum products around the world, they will get combusted eventually. And the emissions from those are what's hard for the oil companies to make a promise on how to deal with them. Fortunately, though, I think there's some new technologies and some new developments that will prevent us from needing all of that oil. And electric vehicles are one example of that, I think. So we'll see how that plays out. So is it right to understand it as scope one and scope two emissions being direct emissions and scope three as being indirect emissions? Indirect for the company, I guess. Yeah. But scope three is everything that's not scope one and scope two. <laughs> so in other words, scope one is everything that they do on their facilities that results in greenhouse gas emissions. Scope two is when they buy electricity or they buy energy from somewhere else. It's the carbon emissions that are embedded in those purchased energy sources. And then, like I said, scope three, it's just simply put, it's the gasoline that everyone puts in their car and then goes and drives around in and emits. So those, it's very difficult to attribute where those belong to and whose responsibility it is to clean them up. Now, if you like what you're hearing so far, do subscribe to our series Green Pulse on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Like us and give us a rating.
So let's get back to how these companies and governments plan to reach net zero now that we've had a lot of these pledges and, and I guess more to come ahead of the COP26 climate meeting in November. So what options do companies and governments have in reaching this goal? Renewables clearly would be one. New technology like green hydrogen might be another. Perhaps you could take us through some of those things, because I guess that's what you look at right, as part of your job. Yes. It's actually a four or five step process, I think, to decarbonize the economy. The most important thing, I think, is that we must pay serious attention to energy efficiency. And we've been doing this for decades, but it is not receiving as much attention as it deserves. So the very number one thing we need to do is make sure we're using energy efficiently everywhere. Number two, we need to decarbonize electricity as quickly as we can. And renewables right now are the cheapest way to do that. So once you have a decarbonized electricity grid, then the third step is to electrify everything that you can. So electric vehicles are fairly easy substitutes for internal combustion engine cars. And heat pumps are, in places where it's cold in the winter anyway, heat pumps are an electric, very highly efficient method to provide heating and cooling of your home. And then fourth, like you said, things like green hydrogen and other decarbonized fuels need to be developed for hard to decarbonize sectors of the economy. And that includes things like cement production, steel production, long distance transport, ocean freight, things like that. And so electricity won't work for those kinds of processes. So you need a substitute like a green fuel, so to speak. And then fifth, and this is further down the line, but we're going to need to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere also. And we shouldn't be focusing on that too much yet. In other words, it shouldn't interfere with us decarbonizing the grid as quickly as possible. But eventually, we're going to need to start pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere in order to reach net zero levels of emissions. So renewables, we've seen, of course, certainly the past decade, the investment has accelerated dramatically. And I guess we expect even much greater investment for wind and solar and battery storage going forward. I think a lot of people seem to think that renewables is the great hope that will get us to net zero. But as you just explained, it's only one tool. So that said, can renewables become the dominant source of energy for the planet, or at least for electricity for the world in the next 30 years? Well, according to the International Energy Agency, renewable capacity, which is the ability to produce energy, it's not actual generation of energy, but according to the IEA, renewables will become the largest source of power supply by the year 2024, which is only a couple of years away. So it's growing very rapidly. Coal use is either flat or falling in most countries. Some countries like the United States are still expanding natural gas generation. So renewables have a long way to go. One example is that in the year 2020, the U.S. installed a record amount of renewables, 33 gigawatts in one year. That's wind and solar. But to reach a decarbonized grid in the year 2035, we're going to need to double or triple that amount every single year, starting next year and going through the year 2035. That shows you the challenge that lies ahead of us. Renewables can do it. They're affordable. There are technical solutions until you reach very high penetration levels. But right now, it's the best, most cost-effective option we have to begin decarbonizing. 
Jeff, recently US climate envoy John Kerry came under fire for kind of saying that a lot of the abatement will come from future technologies. What are your thoughts on this statement? Yeah, that statement drew a lot of controversy, I'd say, because some people think that we already have everything we need to at least get well down the road of decarbonization before we have to rely on some unknown technology. And I think he was thinking about the, at least in the United States, the Biden administration's plan is both to take immediate action now and decarbonize as much as we can, and to continue a robust research and development strategy so that we can come up with more cost-effective ways to get carbon out of the air. And my personal view is, yes, we are going to need some new technology. We're going to need long duration batteries. We're probably going to need green hydrogen, and it's going to have to become much, much cheaper for it to be effective. So we have enough to get started and to go full blast. And we have to expect that we'll get some new technologies within the next 10 years or so to get the rest of the way there. So I think it's pretty clear that we do need an overhaul of our energy systems in order to help us reach net zero. But how do you think all these systemic changes will affect people? I mean, are there concerns that renewables might be a more intermittent source of energy, for instance? Well, yeah, I think we've learned a lot in the past 20 years about how to integrate renewables into our energy system so that their intermittency isn't a huge challenge. Yes, there are still problems, as you saw in Texas during the freeze a few months ago. And Australia, for example, has experienced some problems with renewables. But these were learning opportunities. And I think we're doing a lot to make sure that the benefits of renewables are achieved and that no one socioeconomic group is either a beneficiary or a sufferer from relying on renewables too much. So I guess the last question is what the ordinary person can do. So other than turning off the lights when not in use or setting their air conditioners at a higher temperature, so in Singapore, 24, 25, instead of the 21 or 22 in the usual freezing shopping malls, for example. So how can individuals help nudge this transition along? What can they do? Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, you have to be probably wealthy enough to be able to do many of the things where you do have an option. Certainly, if you have enough money, you could go out and buy an electric car, and that would make a difference. Everyone can vote. If people are concerned about their politicians standing up to do something about climate change, the most important thing they can do is vote to have the strongest voices in governance. And then finally, making sure that your children and those other people who are around you are aware of how important the climate challenge is, and then practical steps that you can take every day to make sure that you don't waste energy. I think those are very important. Of course, nowadays, it's usually the kids who are telling the adults what the adults should be doing to lessen the impacts of climate change. I guess for individuals, we can also try to lower our scope to emissions by buying from renewable energy providers. Certainly. And that's why it's so popular now. You know, all these big companies are buying 100% renewables so that they can put that green sign out in front of their name. And I guess for the ordinary house owner, more efficient lighting or choosing appliances that are more energy efficient, because as you rightly say, energy efficiency is sometimes kind of lost in the conversation and the rush to capture the narrative on renewables, but just even much more efficient appliances in the house, from TVs to fridges to air conditioning, lowering your own individual electricity use is quite important. Yeah, and it saves money. It's a no-brainer. 
Well, thank you, Jeff, for joining us today. We appreciate you coming on our show. Thank you very much, Audrey. It was nice being with you and David. Well, that's a wrap for Green Pulse, and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more on climate change and the environment, do check out our stories in The Straits Times. And don't forget to subscribe to our Green Pulse podcast series on your favourite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.